Father, thank you for life. Um, thank you, you are so gracious to human beings. Gracious to grandparents and parents and children. You put life into their little lungs. and You're an amazing God. You give what we could never give. We have not the abilities to produce life on our own. And we certainly fall so short of producing any kind of eternal life. So we thank you, Lord, that you are a great God that oversees all things. Your hands are on these people. You're on us. You're caring for people who we love who are far away. You're intimately involved and acquainted with all the ways of our life. So I thank you that you love us so dearly. Uh, Please strengthen me as I preach. May the word of God do its work in our hearts through the work of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible records the struggle that man has in submitting to God. It isn't hard to study the Bible and you will see all the way through there is a battle of man submitting to God. It starts in the garden. God was so gracious, wasn't he? He, he gives them everything they need. He puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful surrounding. He gives Adam a bride. He shows that his intelligence and his creation is higher than anything out there. He gives them commands to eat of everything in the garden, but one tree he wanted them not to go near and to trust him on that. And yet they could not do that. They end up rejecting the word of God and believing Satan's lies. You can follow person after person through the scriptures and you can end up with Peter here right before the cross. Jesus is going to say, I am going to die at the hands of sinful man. And Peter he begins to vehemently oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not happen, he says. And the Lord says Satan wants to sift you. And I'm praying for you, Peter. And so we see over and over in the scriptures where man rebels. There's a struggle of submission to a gracious God. And you and I know it, don't we? We all struggle with it. We know God's word. We've been taught the word of God. And yet at times we really struggle to obey him at times. We'll justify all kinds of things. We'll say, well, this is why and this is why and so forth. But there's a battle there. We fight an unredeemed humanness in us. It's called the flesh. Paul talked about that battle in Romans chapter 7. said it was very real. Battles the reason why, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? How do I, how is this going on in my life? I know the truth and yet I battle with it. And then he says, Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25 is such a verse. I thank God through Jesus Christ. There's the answer. Because we all battle. And the Apostle Paul, writer of 13 scriptures, planner of countless churches, and training of countless men, he tells us he battles. And then a verse we looked at on Sunday, Galatians 5, 25, uh, 17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So there's this war going on with the spirit of God in our flesh. He will win, but there is a battle nonetheless. And then it says this little phrase, For these are in opposition to one another. And this little phrase catches you. So that you may not do the things that you please. 
Now that's only written for believers. Because the things a believer pleases to do is to walk with God. We, we want to do that. I would say that every true believer in here has a desire, because the Spirit is in you, to walk with God. You desire that. But there's a war going on. And sometimes that war uh, seems like the flesh is winning. Now, as we turn our attention to the nation of Israel, and we have to study it this way, we have to realize that there's got to be application to us, because we can just look at it as a historical fact, because it is his history and it is a fact. But if we don't make application to it, we don't look at these dear folks and say, whoa, if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I, we've missed the application of the text. So we work very hard to say, well, how does this work in my life as we look at the text verse by verse and understand what it is saying and then we make application. So let me give you four thoughts today to help us make application. The presence of the glory of God curves our sinful desires. The presence of the glory of God curves our sinful desires. We made it through one through seven in in chapter 16 last week. Um, but you'll notice in verse 7, it says that in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us, Moses says. Now you remember, we end it with this, that Moses parallels the glory of God with provision. So when God provides for us life, breath, everything else. The Bible says you see the glory of God. It's such an important thought. I think this is where, where we stray so often and where we go into fleshly battles is because we don't give glory to God for the little things in life. When, when you do, when you think about Everything we do, driving home and we make it there safely, we, the food we eat, the house we live in, the family that we have, all of those tell us that God is, gloriful, glor- is, is glorious. Now look at verse 8 with me. It's almost a repetition here. Moses said, this will happen, this glory of the Lord will happen, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the, in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumbling, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So it's, it's almost a repeat of verse 7, but there's a little bit of addition here. There's a little bit of addition. He tells them that in the evening and morning, there's, there, God is going to show his glory to you in the form of food. But then he shows them that they've wrongly attributed their their judgment against Moses and Aaron, it's really against God. Notice that at the end, your grumblings are not against us, but it's against the Lord. I think I said this last week, I used to stand in the window and watch it rain and grumble and say, I want to go out and play. And my mom said, well, you better have, you have a problem with God, don't you? No, I got a problem with the rain. No, you have a problem with God. He sent the rain, <laughs> right? You remember that? Um, and, and it was true. Now, now, they're grumbling against Moses because would you dare grumble against God who just divided a sea and swallowed up your enemies? Oh, no. We'll pick on flesh and blood long before we pick on him. Now, here comes the grace of God that is new every morning. He's going to shower provision on a people 
that are grumbling. God is showing to the nation that all of their circumstances were in his control, that they, that they were to turn to him alone to meet their provision. He wants them to say, we have to trust in God. Now think about this. He's got them in the desert. There's millions of them. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. He's he literally forcing them to the point where they will trust him. Now this happens to us. Probably all of us that have had any time in the faith very long, you know you've spent time in the desert. <laughs> the times where God forces you to trust him. He, he runs you into a box canyon so that you've got to trust him. And that's what I think he's doing here. Verse nine, then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Now this verse scares me a bit when I read it. One, there's a complaining state. And then two, he calls them to come near before the Lord in your grumbling. Now, this is an exposure of sin, isn't it? You're gonna be grumblers. Come here, because the Lord's coming. <laughs> How many of us would say, uh, yeah, well, you know, I really didn't mean it. <laughs> You're bringing in the big guy, right? See, we don't fear our loving God except when there's sin. Then there's a different kind of reference for him. Oh, we all look forward to dad coming home unless we've been in trouble. Ooh. Now, <laughs> I'm worried about dad. I can hear that car driving up in the driveway. Oh, no. See, now the presence of God is there, and, and, and they are now realizing this, and they're called before him by Moses. Moses wants, to, wants them to know, look, this is not me who's doing this. This is God. The interesting word, congregation, here, it's, just being starting to be used as this group of people now called uh, this nation of Israel in numbers. It's translated over 125 times in the Old Testament, almost always referring to the gathering of God's people. It's a great term. And, and, and just, I did a quick study on it, and I thought, Lord, you are always calling your people to gather. He wants the church, he wants his people gathering. And I think that was what was disturbing when we went through this is we're trying to obey the government and we're trying to say, okay, yeah, this is probably a good thing and yeah, the government wants to do this, but we're going, our God wants us to gather. We know he wants us to gather. So we have to navigate through that. We have to work our way through it, honoring the king, but also loving God more than anything. And I think our church has done that well for his glory. Now remember, God's glory was present in the pillar in the cloud. So he's been with them. He's been leading them, protecting them from Egypt that before they crossed the sea. And in fact, the cloud that was ahead of the people in, in, is now pointing them in the direction of Mount Sinai. So they're working their direction to the mount. And I think this was what would explain what happens next. Look, look at verse 10. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked towards the wilderness. This would be the direction that God was leading them. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now, I think normally the cloud that led them probably wasn't terribly bright during the day. The pillar at night certainly would have been. But during the day it wasn't. But here I think we get the idea as we read this verse there's an intensification of this inner light as the Lord reminds the people of his presence. 
He's always been there, but all of a sudden it seems, and you can look at this verse with me and see if you agree, it seems to be an intensification, I'm here. (laughs) Why you're grumbling? I'm here. Now, the verse says, behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. It seems to me that the Lord is making a statement about their grumbling and a powerful statement of how he's going to provide for them. You're grumbling in my presence. I see what you're doing, and yet I'm going to give you what you need. Now, isn't that God? (laughs) Think about us. How how many, is there anything you grumbled about this week? Anybody want to share that? No, no, hold it. You can tell me afterwards. You don't have to tell me anything. We are grumblers, aren't we? We grumble about the government. We grumble about politics and news. We grumble about our wages and all kinds of things, don't we? But God listens to this, and yet he faithfully provides. Look at verse 11 and 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumbling Grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, these verses are clearly um, repetition to drive home the point. They, they, are, they are also a prediction and a fulfillment to serve this lesson. You need to trust me. You need to trust me. And every aspect of promise will take place. Everything I say, I will do. Notice that phrase, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. A very similar phrase, um, yet without the intimacy of his own people, would be said to Egypt over and over. That you would know that there I am God and there is none like me. He would say that very similar phrase to the nation of uh, Egypt as he brought the plagues on them. But here it's more intimate. It's, it's I'm your father, I'm your God, and you're going to know that who I am, and you're going to have a relationship with me. Now, I think, and I think I have good biblical background to, or good biblical references to prove this, I think when you get close and see the glory of God through the word of God, it inspires you or curves your your hunger for the flesh curves it away. If you're struggling with sin, go to the glory of God. I think these, you know, there's 10 steps here and seven there and 12 here and all these other things, but none of them say, look to the glory of God. Man doesn't know how to do that. He can't do that in himself. Medical community has no, no understanding of the soul and how to deal with the spiritual aspect of it. But God tells us to look to his glory. When you see the glory of God, you see your your Savior who loves you, who knew you, who chose you from the foundations of the world. Think about this. When you look into him, you see him hanging on a cross for you. You see him beating sin, Satan, and death. Do you want to sin as a Christian? No, and that's the glory of God. We, We see the glory of God in the face of Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, I think. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and so it curves our desire to sin. So we we seek the glory of God in Christ. This is how we battle sin. I promise you, if you have a sin issue in your life and you're just trying to somehow 
play around with God and try to beat it, it will beat you. In fact, the Bible said, as we read earlier, it is the spirit that wars against the flesh. It doesn't say you war against the flesh. Because why? You'll lose. (laughs) It's too powerful. And so the spirit of God loves to show you the brightness and glory of Christ through the word of God. And it gives you the ability to stand in the present suffering or the present temptation. Second thought. There's a gracious providing God. A gracious providing God. And then the second part of my point, in the greedy nature of mankind. Isn't it interesting? You're going to see this. There's a gracious providing God and there's a greedy nature of man. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. He asks us to ask him, no, excuse me, he tells us to ask him for basic necessities. Not to just take those for granted, but to ask him for those things. And I think the people did not have long to wait to find out what the Lord was going to do for them, how he was going to provide for them. But he he gives daily needs to us. And I think he does it in several ways here. In the evening, God gave them a temporary provision for meat. He'll see him do it again in numbers, but this time it's a little different. He's going to make it come out of their teeth and nostrils. Um, But here he provides a temporary portion of meat, protein for them. And then in the morning, he starts, now think about this, this ongoing supply of bread for 40 years. This is the day he starts that. For 40 years, they will never need, literally, need bread. For 40 years, they will not do that. Because every morning, except on the, on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, we'll see that in a minute, God will give them bread from heaven. This is a gracious, providing God. Now, look at verse 13 and 14. So it came about at the evening that the quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. Well, first of all, he provides meat for them. It is translated, I think in most of our translations, the word quail is silav, 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 silav is the Hebrew word. It refers to a small partridge-like bird. It's a, similar to our quail. And it migrates from the north of Africa to southern Europe. I've watched this on Discovery Channel. I have seen this. Um, they still do this to this day. And they often pass right through the Sinai region where the Israelites are. And they, they're reported that this is an area where they often find rest. And they stop on this journey and rest in this Sinai region. In fact, there, there's reports that the people would often catch the birds by hand because they were so tired from the flight there. They would land and kind of crash and burn and they would just be able to grab them. Others would get them at night when they would roost in, in the trees. They would just grab them. In fact, even on the ancient Egyptian walls, there's paintings 
of the Egyptians in this area throwing nets over bushes to grab these birds. So this is something that happens. Now, this may be a natural event that happens occasionally, but you cannot miss the supernatural hand of God that through his divine knowledge and his power to place everything in its right place, the people in the right place, the food source in the right place, all in perfect timing, all in perfect quantities, right where the nation was standing. Men, there's always people saying, oh, you know, this, this wasn't supernatural, this just happens. I mean, a couple miles left or right, <laughs> there's, there's no meat for dinner. So God is orchestrating these things. Look at the graciousness of our God. And as far as the manna was concerned, this is nothing short of just miraculous power of God to create a unique bread for his unique people in a unique situation. They're slaves, they have nothing, they're exhausted. And he provides all this. And somehow God has combined the appearing of this bread and the burning off of the dew every morning as described in verse 14. It's just an incredible miracle. And people fight this. Oh man, do they struggle. You know, they just don't want to believe God's word is what it comes down to. But you, you can read all these people. Ah, ah, ah. They just have a hard time believing this. And what's interesting about this is this is not a one-off miracle of God's. And they struggle with beating this because it happens for 40 years and it's documented throughout the world's history. And they just don't know what to do with it. Now look at verse 15. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This response of the Israelites tells us that this manna was no natural product, right? They had seen bread. They had seen anything in the area that you would eat, right? And they're puzzled, and they ask this question, what is it? The Hebrew word just simply means man. Um, And it's later led to this term manna. And some have tried to link um, this manna to natural things. I read several things on this. There uh, one guy thought it was this, what they call lichen, a little sweet pea that's grown in the area, and it, it opens up, and the wind breaks it, breaks it, the pods loose, and it floats and rolls around in the wilderness. So someone's thought it was that. I don't think so. There's also a tamarisk tree in the area that secretes kind of a honey-like secretion, and then when the sun hits it, gets hard, you can break it, and has some protein in it and so forth. But again... How do you feed two million plus people off of a couple of trees that spread out all over? So, look, this is just God doing his creative work, isn't it? Every day, every morning, he showed himself to be creator for 40 years. We know this because we see it all through the Bible, but even Christ, we see him as creation He's at the wine, uh, creating the wine at Cana. It's just a beautiful story. First, first miraculous recorded event of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes an excellent wine, greater than anything they had. Um, he goes into the wilderness with hundreds and thousands of people that are following him into the wilderness, and he creates fish and bread and feeds these people. This is what God does. This is a gracious God. He meets our needs, even when we grumble and complain. 
Well, this provision of manna on this day was the beginning of 40 years that God would meet their needs. And it's fun to kind of study this. You've, 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 said, you've seen this before. Their shoes don't wear out. They, they walk through enemy territory. God gives them favor with some countries, other countries. They've got to get around, and God lets those countries have it later. In this rebellious, grumbling group, he just meets their needs. Look at verse 16 through 18. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, every man, as much as he should eat. And you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they had measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. And every man gathered as much as he should eat. Well, what does that mean? Well, simply, it's a provision was such that nobody goes hungry. That's the kind of the long and the short of it. So, so God knew, think about this, God knew, knows the consumption of food of each person. And, and he always provided the exact amount, the ample provision for the needs of this massive group of people. You ever had a large group over your house and you're trying to figure out, do we have enough food? <laughs> He never misses the mark. He gives them exactly what they need. And most likely, due to hunger, the people begin to gather this immediately and they, they gather according to their needs, what verse 17 tells us. Look, they, they go out and they gather what they can eat. As much as they need it or as little as they need it. In other words, they gathered the manna from the ground and picked up whatever they believed would feed their family. And the result was different amounts were collected. But whatever happened, um, uh, excuse me, what, what happened next is just something of a miracle. If you study this text, you come and you go to it, and you go, wow, what happened here? No matter what they collected, if you study this, the individual got back to his tent and measured it out, and it was just the right amount for the family. That's the way the text reads. It's a little tricky in the English, but as you get into it, you go, everything they collected was the right amount. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, one, the study of the text shows us that whatever they got, great or little, it was just what they needed. That's what the text says. But then the Apostle Paul uses this text, and I want you to see this. Go to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because this particular text is used for an illustration of giving. I found this quite fascinating. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. Paul is encouraging the church to, to gather an offering, to get ready to give, to be earnest in their giving, to give with cheerful hearts, he'll say in the next chapter. And he's, he's preparing them to give um, in a right proportional way. Verse 12, so he says, for if the readiness is present, if you're ready to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So right off the bat, the Bible says the person is to give, Paul's saying give by the measure of what you have. We, we, we probably, uh, you know, if, if, I don't know how we'd ever know this, but everybody probably gives, I hope, in proportion to what God gives them. That's the goal, right? 
That's why he used percentages in the Old Testament. New Testament's out of a cheerful heart, but here Paul's using this idea. You give according to what God has given you, right? Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. So this is God's means of meeting the needs of the church. He takes everybody and their individual gift, what God has given them, how he supported them, given them what they need, and then from there, every one of us give back to the Lord in in what he has given us, and that is the equality of giving. You see that? Unfortunately, it doesn't happen in a lot of churches. And that's why churches get bigger and bigger and bigger and smaller staffs because their people don't give much. There's a church that's 10 times our size that don't have the staff we have um, because they have to get large groups because people don't give in equality. God wants us to give in equality. But notice this in verse 15. Here he uses this passage. Paul uses this. It's right out of our text in Exodus 16. As it is written, he who gathers much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So it's a statement of equality. So as these people gathered, all that they gathered, they came back into their tent, and it was just what they needed. And Paul uses that as an example that each of us give out of what God has given us, and it meet, God uses that to meet the needs of others. Fascinating, isn't it? So God provided a miraculous way to lead to, to equality as they gathered each as individuals and families. Look at verse 19 and 20 as we turn back to our text. Moses said to them, let no man leave any, um, let no man leave any of it until morning. Uh-oh, verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and became foul and Moses was angry with them. Well, this bread of heaven came with instructions. God, usually when he gives us something, he gives us a stewardship. He tells us how he wants something handled, right? He entrusts us to deal with something so he gives us instructions. He's a good God. Now, this bread exposes the hearts of some people, doesn't it? There were those who had still not learned the lesson that the Lord requires precise obedience. He gives instruction and he wants his people to follow it. It's good for them. And the result was this physical foul stench, but it was the spiritual stench which was the great lesson. You don't trust God and now you're stinking up the place. Happens a lot of times in homes And I think the lesson here is God does not care for greed, does he? You know what happened. I don't want to get up early the next day because the only way I can get to this thing is I got to get up early. So I want to sleep in. I don't want to go get food from God early. I want to just roll out of the sack, get myself onto the donkey and get over to work. I don't want to spend time gathering God's food. Anybody know where I'm going with this? See the laziness that brings a stench in spiritual life? Have you got your mind around the whole toilet paper thing? (laughs) I can't go too far with this analogy. 
it's not like you use more during this, but everybody hoarded it. I don't know, I can't, I gotta leave that. The people of Moses' day acted in defiance of God's command. You go, well, Scott, they were just trying. No, no, it's defiance. It was very clear. Do not gather more. I'll give you what you need. Go get it. It'll be enough. Trust me. And look, in their hope to have more, this is the greed, right? The greed part of the statement that I gave you. The extra they kept for themselves, they in fact lost it. And it ended up smelling disgusting in the camp. So we will fight so hard to hold on to more, and it'll become disgusting after a while. If that is your motive. So this must have been some stench because Moses is outwardly angry, isn't he, in this text, due to their foolishness and disobedience. And clearly, the greater amount. Who, uh, who disobeyed here, the greater the stench. So I don't know how many people did. The Bible doesn't tell us, but the stench was great. And just the long and the short is disobedience stinks. It really does. It has a foul smell. And you should, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should smell that stench. <laughs> Ooh, that is not a sweet aroma to God. That's, that's the Spirit helping you realize that those things are contrary to the things of God. He does not want you to partake in those things. And here's a gracious God providing and a greedy nature of man pollutes. Verse 21. They gathered in the morning by morning. They gathered it morning by morning and every man had as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted away. And so no doubt the lesson was learned soon, Right? Because you went hungry the next day. You didn't get up because you thought you had some left over. The manna did not last long. In the morning, as the sun began to warm the earth's surface, the food disappeared. This, this was yet a condition of obedience. Get up early. Gather. Go get the bread of God. And I, I, I hope that encourages you. And, and again, some, I, I don't know if everybody's lifestyle leads to getting up early, but for many of us, that's when our minds are the most freshest. You've rested. Your mind has rested. You were able to shut that down, at least for a few hours, I hope. And, and you get up and you spend time with the Lord. And, and again, I don't, no, that's not the principle I'll make an application to this. But the Lord is there in the morning. He's there all the time. But there's a sweet time in the morning. Get up and collect the bread of God and spend time with him. He'll give you just what you need. He'll give you just what he needs. I don't know how many people have told me. They'll, they'll text me or email me or talk to me on Sunday or something. They said, I read this passage and it was exactly what I needed. Or, or pastor, that sermon was exactly what I needed. They'll use those words, exactly. That's what God's word does. If you do what he's asked you to do and handle it the way he asked you to handle it, he'll, it'll give you exactly what you need. We just don't want to listen and we want to sleep in. Third, God prepares his people for worship through his provision. God prepares his people for worship through his provision. Verse 22 and following. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, verse 23, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. 
all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. Now, notice some of the language here. Uh, first, on the sixth day. So there's a calendar working here, right? They know there's a calendar. So there's a sixth day. So these other days don't gather any more than what you should. On the sixth day, there's instruction here. Now, this would have been different, right? Wait a minute. Last time we gathered too much, we got the whole worm deal. <laughs> we don't want to do that again. But all of a sudden, God says, no, I want you to gather twice on this day. Then notice this phrase here, because we want to figure out what's going on here. It's a little bit of a tricky verse. When all of the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses. So, so there's a couple things that might be happening here. There's really two views that, that really happen here. One, and this is the view I think I hold, it is possible that on the sixth day, after gathering the manna, when the people returned to the tents, they measured out this manna, and there was twice as much. Remember God said, when you're measured out, you'll have just what you need. But this time, they measured out, and they go, have they have twice. Okay? That's one possibility. Others hold this possibility. They think that Moses had told the people previously, although it was unrecorded, that on the sixth day, you would get twice as much. Now, that may be true. But there's nothing in the Bible. Nothing tells us that he did that. So I lean toward the first possibility that Moses had, had said nothing about the matter. The people were puzzled with this extra supply of manna, so they questioned their leaders. Remember, they had elders over them, local, local leaders that they went to, because there's millions of them, right? They all can't come to Moses. So they go to those leaders, and they say, leaders, look, last time we did this, it was worm bait. Um, what do we do? And so that's when these men come. In verse 23, it seems Moses endorses the people's action and then gives them clear instructions from the Lord of how to proceed. Notice it says, this is what the Lord meant. This is what the Lord meant. Look at there in verse 23. So now Moses is giving further um, explanation. He gives this a look. This is correct. This is from God. This is God's extra provision. This, and, and he provides an explanation. God is preparing the nation for rest and worship. He's, he's getting them ready for the Sabbath rest. That hasn't been given yet, right? They haven't got to Sinai. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have an ark. They don't have a tabernacle. They don't have any of this right now. They're just a group of ex-slaves wandering around in the desert. So the... This is interesting because this is the first occurrence of the word Sabbath in the Bible, right? Um, at least for the nation of Israel in the seventh day of the week. So there's, there, it's not a consecrated day yet. Um, that's not recorded in the scripture. and That doesn't happen until Exodus 20, verse 8. So it seems to me that this extra measurement of manna on the sixth day is preparing the people for the upcoming command to set the seventh day apart, to be holy and, and for rest for this nation. Remember, this nation has had little rest. And, and we're going we're gonna to get into more of Sabbath and try to understand that for us today. And Christ is our Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4. And oh, that gets blown out of proportion even today and misused. And we'll talk about that more when we get a little farther into Exodus. But God was going to let this nation rest. This is the graciousness of God. For 400 years, well, 300 or so years of slavery and then 400 years in Egypt, they worked hard. They've been running for their enemies. God is gracious and he gives rest. And so the priority of the Sabbath is divinely marked out here. And notice it's marked out without imposing hardship on the people. When you study the Sabbath, it is not for hardship. It's, it's, it's this 
miraculous thing that begins to happen here on the sixth and seventh day. I'm going to give you enough food. That's miraculous. He gives twice as much as they need on the sixth day. And the other miracle on the seventh day is it doesn't spoil like it would on the first through fifth. Or first through sixth. So the manna was kept over for another day. It wouldn't spoil, wouldn't smell. And God does a miracle to preserve it here. Remember, this is his heavenly food and he can do what what he wants and he wants his people to have enough for two days and he wants them to rest and he wants them to learn to worship. I I want so badly to talk about the Sabbath. I will get to it, I promise, because it's been mishandled by so many people of what God intended for it. We'll get to that more in time. Verse 24, so they put it aside until morning as Moses was, had ordered, and they did not be, it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And so here, there's no more details given about the Sabbath. It's just obey this, and they did. Verse 25 down to 30, Moses said, eat, eat it today, for to, today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will, find, will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather, but on the seventh day... Uh, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. You could put a little bracket in there, and they went hungry because each person had enough for themselves. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse, interesting, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath Therefore, he gives you bread for two days. On the sixth day, remain every man in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, manna that they kept overnight didn't spoil. The manna was good. And the Lord was impressing upon the people the extent of his control over every aspect of their life, right? I actually have control over the days of the week. I can meet your need even on this day. He's showing him his power, right? However, in verse 27, notice that he, it tells us that there were those who could not trust God. They, don't, they, can't, they can't trust him to provide, so they think fleshly. I've got to have more. This matters to me, and I've got to put things in my own hand and go do this. And, and you notice it provokes the Lord's righteous anger here. But in verse 28, he says he's mad at you. He uses the word you. Look at this. Then, he, then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep me. Well, thank goodness for good language study. That's a you is a plural. <laughs> I don't think he's mad at Moses. Um, I know he's not angry with him, but it reveals to Moses his div- uh, divine displeasure. He's linking them together. This nation is moving not in my favor. They're, they're disobeying me. Notice the word given. I I think this is fascinating in verse 29. It reminds us that God has gifted these people through his grace with food and rest. Look at, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. He's given you rest. He's given you enough to meet the need for that day. One of the things that's interesting when you travel, um, especially in the third world, and and most of my travels take me into those places, but it's rural, it's it's not... uh, it's difficult life. They, they live what they call hand to mouth, right? So each day they must gather enough. And that brings challenges, doesn't it? Um, and yet God, God says, look, I know you're living hand to mouth, but I will meet this day. Now, 
See, this fits with the Lord's theology of the Sabbath. Jesus himself said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Lord had made enough provision for the needs of that day so that no one needed to go out, meaning that there was no need to leave the camp and go out and search for food and gather all that. Stay home, rest, prepare your heart to meet with me. This was the idea there. Otherwise, the Sabbath becomes this uh, difficult day and so many people have made it this way because they put expectations upon the sabbath that god never met and particularly as new testament christians when all has been fulfilled in christ christ is the sabbath he we rest in him on monday tuesday wednesday and all the way through we find our grace and mercy but people put so much weight in these and they wear their people out they wear their families out they wear people around them out and pretty soon the sabbath is a bunch of work and they don't worship I can't get into that too far, but I want to. So there's, they're now free here. God is freeing them to think spiritually. And you know, he does that to this day, isn't he? I know there's people who have to work on Sunday because they're nurses or, you know, emergency people or your whatever, may, whatever may the reason be. I know many people strive to try to get Sundays off so they can be in worship because it's important to them to rest with God's people and hear that. I really appreciate that. It's encouraging. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. I think they learned it, one, that they went out and there was nothing there, and so they, they said, okay. Verse 31, notice this. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like a coriander seed, white, and tasted like a wafer with honey. I think at this point the food is, is just given a name here. The original question is what is it, and it was really kind of transformed into a title. What is it? It was the Hebrew word for man. Um, the Septuagint later uh, takes this word and adds the N-A onto it, and we get it manna for this wafer-type bread. Verse 32 through 36 at the end of the chapter, then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let, let an omer be, of it be kept throughout your generation that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generation. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Now this is an interesting text. You can tell it's a commentary, isn't it? First of all, Moses didn't know at that point they were going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. So that tips you off that this is an insert that Moses writes. As he's writing this years later, before they're ready to go into the land of Canaan, Moses inserts this in here, and there's some reasons why. I think this is a tremendously interesting commentary here. At the time, there's no tabernacle, there's no Ark of the Covenant. And it is possible that Moses at this time made a note. Maybe he wrote this down and that this is what God wants to do and that this should happen. And, and, and doubtlessly, uh, as he penned this section of scripture um, some prior time before the interest, uh, entrance into the promised land, he knew that God wanted this fulfilled. Notice in verse 33 that again there's this miraculous event that takes place. This manna that would decay is put into a jar and doesn't decay. There's so many miracles in this passage. I did not realize that when I started studying this. This is one after another. So this manna doesn't decay. Verse 34, notice there, 
we're not sure when this manna was placed. It says, in, it said that it's to be placed before the testimony. That's usually um, refers to the Ark of the Covenant. But the jar was not placed in the Ark of the Covenant. We know that that in First Kings chapter eight verse nine tells us that the only thing in the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, was two tablets. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, and this is really fun to track all this stuff down, it tells us that there was a gold jar of manna, Aaron's rod, and a tablet of, uh, the tablets were in the ark. So somewhere, somewhere along the line through the centuries, these, these people brought this stuff together and they placed it before the Lord inside the ark. But here, the, the, this holy place, it probably is in front of the curtain near the uh, the, the incense of altar. So I just think this is valid. Uh, you may not, but when, you, when you're studying scripture along and there's this narrative going along and all of a sudden it drops this commentary in that happened years later. Remember, after all the things that went on, they got the Ten Commandments, they disobeyed, they broke them, went got a new set, they made it all the way to the land of Canaan, the spies went in, they rejected God, ten of them, God sends them around the wilderness, all those over 20 die, um, for 40 years they wander around, and then they're just about ready to go in, and then as Moses is writing this, drops this commentary in the middle of it. So we understand all of these events. I think that's pretty cool. Verse 35 carries the commentary of God's provision of manna for 40 years. Right there it tells us for manna for 40 years. You imagine walking out your front door and on your front lawn there was bread there every day for you. That's incredible. And, and then the manna stopped. The Bible tells us the manna stops when they left the wilderness and into the promised land. You can read this in Joshua chapter 5 verse 10 through 15, and I gotta quit here, but there is a very, uh, actually I got one quick point I wanna get through. That's a fascinating thing. They get into the land, they, they celebrate their first Passover in the land. God gives them cultivated food, the Bible says, and the manna went away. So once he got them to where he told them he'd get, he provides for them, and then the manna goes away. Last thought here, just a point of application. Do we accept our God and Savior as both guide and deliverer? He is guiding them through this wilderness. He has delivered them from Egypt. Do we accept them? And I think this comes down to true discipleship. And true disciples, not just gaining information, going through another study in order to, to know something or have some knowledge that you can regurgitate in some way. It's about truly knowing God, our Savior, in order to increase a life that is pleasing to him. That's discipleship. So if you do discipleship for any reason, other than that, that God, I want to know you better. I want to know who you are so I can trust you because I seem to want to trust myself and then it gets stinky after a while. <laughs> that, see, I want to know you. That's, that's the goal. Paul said to Galatians, look, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever man sows, he will reap. If you sow in discord, it will stink you sow with a wrong heart and selfish desire and a grumbling spirit and not desiring to worship God, not resting in him. You'll sow from your flesh and that will reap cor corruption, Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Galatians. But the spirit, it sows so that it reaps eternal life and so there's a difference and that's what discipling does. 
Discipling helps us say, God, I want to see your glory. I want to be dependent upon it. I want to trust that you're going to meet my needs. I don't want to be afraid of the news. I don't want to be afraid of what's going to happen in this world. I want to believe in my heart, Psalms 139, that every day has been ordained to me before there was one ever given. I want to, I want to believe that and I want to live that way. See, that's discipleship. It's knowing God. And yes, we've got some great discipleship programs, but if you just take them for simple knowledge and don't really desire from your heart, say, God, give me a heart to know you, it just becomes head knowledge. Now look, we're saved by grace alone. And we have a perfect standing in God through Christ. But there's a battle with that unredeemed humanness. It longs for slavery. And look, the problem with Israel is they couldn't, they wanted to keep a foot in that slavery. And I think we do the same thing. We, we dabble around with sin. We mess around with the things that God uh, does not want us to be involved in. And, 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 and we still act like we're enslaved when we're free. How foolish is that? And this is why God wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of himself. God's spirit is warring against your flesh if you'll let him. He's going to war. He's going to fight for you. Give him the room. Let him go to battle. Bend the knee to him. Submit to him. Study, study to know and see his glory. Do you accept the, the guider and the deliverer of your life? Do you bend the knee to him? See, God desires each of his children to be discipled with the goal of active dependence upon our Redeemer. Active dependence. Let me close with this. I want you to listen to this last phrase. The psalmist captures what I think is a perfect description of what God desires for the nation of Israel and for every person that claims the name of Christ. Listen to this psalm. Psalms 81 verse 10. Listen closely. I, the Lord, Yahweh, I am your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We'll stop right there because we've got to make application to us. I am the God who rescued you from the pit. You were enslaved. You were hell bound. Shackled in chains of sin. I am the God who brought you out of that bondage. And then listen to this last phrase. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What a verse. What a verse. Are we those people that say, God, you, you freed me. We sing the songs, my chains are gone. You know, we sing all this. Do we open our mouth and say, God, feed me? <laughs> or do we try to do all that? See, that's what he was after. Trust me. I have you in the desert. You can't grow anything. You can't get anything. You need to trust me. Look, if you don't do that, he'll run you out into the desert. If you're a Christian, he, will, uh, he does this because he loves you. He'll run you out in the desert, get you starving, till you'll go, feed me, God. <laughs> Anybody been there? I saw some of you out there wandering around with me one time. And finally we go, okay, God, I got nothing left. My mouth is open. That's what the Lord wants, dependency upon him. Lord, this is so fun to study your word. These, these passages come alive from thousands of years ago. You have not changed, God. And neither really has man. We're still grumblers and complainers. We still make a stink of everything. So we don't obey you. 
And yet you are still this gracious God who guides us and delivers us from our troubles. You're so good. Lord, help us to remind ourselves that you brought us out of slavery, of sin. And now we open our mouths and you feed us. Hmm. You're good, God. Thank you for the people that are here, Lord, or have the health to be here, Lord. Please bless them. Thank you for those who are still at home watching online, Lord. Give them strength, Lord. If they're, if they're ill, we pray that you would um, heal them up, Lord. If, if they're susceptible, Lord, please protect them, Lord. And Father, if there's those that just need to finally be encouraged to get off the couch and come, Lord, we pray that you would do that, not us. You would encourage them to come be a part of what we're doing here and gather, Lord. Lord, this is a great this is a great time of life we're in. We have to trust you in a lot of areas. And it strengthens our faith. Help us do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.